the customers you're interacting with have their own lives and their own stuff they're dealing with. And the more you can show up from a place of empathy and understanding and trying to figure out, well, where are they in their journey? What's going on in their personal life, et cetera, the better you'll be able to serve them. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. This episode was previously recorded and published on the Outperform podcast. I'm Bob Glazer, founder and CEO of Acceleration Partners. And the quote for today's episode is from Catherine Barchetti, which is, make a customer, not a sale. Our guest today, Joey Coleman, specializes in helping companies create unique, attention-grabbing customer experiences so that they stay with a company for a long time after the sale. He's the founder and chief experience composer of Design Symphony, and most recently, an author. His new book, which has become an overnight bestseller, is called Never Lose a Customer Again. In it, Joey explains how to simply but intentionally create a customer experience that will generate an army of raving fans that will want to tell everyone about your company. Welcome, Joey. It's great to have you on Outperform. It's great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bob. All right. So first off, I've got to know, the name Chief Experience Composer, how did you come up with that? Well, you know, when I came up with the name of my company, uh, Design Symphony, uh, the theory behind it or the story behind it was that I was going to be focused all on customer experience. And the idea was that we would get all the pieces of your business on the same sheet of music playing in harmony together. And I have a background as a singer, and I've been involved in a lot of musical groups over the years. And I just thought that was kind of a fun way to come up with a name for a company, as well as hopefully create a little bit of a story that people could tell about what I did and why I did it. And when it came time to create a title for myself, I thought, well, there's all kinds of titles that you could use when founding a company, founder, CEO, you know, what, whatever it may be. And I thought, well, if I've got kind of a more fun and playful name for my company, maybe I could come up with a more fun and playful title. And chief experience composer seemed to fit because the role I play when I work with companies in a consulting capacity is to come in and help them figure out what should the overall experience be compose it, put it together, help create, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, the sheet music for them. And then they're the musicians that get to play the music for their customers going forward. I like it. You have quite an eclectic background. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of you to call it eclectic, Bob. Uh, Some people in other uh, interviews have called it ridiculous, insane. Eclectic is the word I like to use. So thank you. You have an eclectic title and an eclectic background. So you practiced law for a few years with your dad yes. before starting yep. design. So what attracted you to law and then what made you leave that career? So I grew up the son of a criminal defense lawyer. So the first time that I was in court, I was in sixth grade, not as a defendant, thankfully, but rather sitting at counsel's table next to my dad, uh, watching him work and being part of the legal team. And so, you know, in the beginning, it was getting coffees and helping uh, build Lego sets for exhibits. We Occasionally, my dad would have me build a, a set out of Legos that would then be used as an exhibit, as a diorama to explain what it 
had happened in this particular case. And that kind of elevated over the years. I worked for him every summer from sixth grade on up through uh, law school. And each year I'd get a little more responsibility to the point where I was helping prep witnesses, doing research for cases, et cetera. And so after attending law school, it seemed like a logical fit that he and I would spend some time working together, which was great fun. So I was a criminal defense lawyer for about five years practicing with him. So talk a little bit more about what Design Symphony does today. And then I'd love to add a twist. What did you take away from criminal defense that you have now woven into your new career? Sure. So right now, uh, in, in my business, about 75 to 80% of my time is spent giving speeches. I am a professional speaker, so I give keynote addresses, I lead workshops, I spend a lot of time on stage. The other, you know, give or take 25% is spent doing one-on-one consulting with clients, uh, helping them to create the customer experiences and the systems and the practices so that they can deliver a remarkable interaction again and again when they're interacting with their customers. I think the thing that I took away, not only from my time as a criminal defense lawyer, but I also worked in Fortune 500 uh, business consulting. I ran a division of a promotional products company. I worked in the White House. I worked for the CIA. I worked for the Secret Service. I taught at the postgraduate level. I've had a a really, as you mentioned, eclectic (laughs) background, indeed. And so some people look at my background and they're like, how does this happen? And I also ran an ad agency for over a decade, designing logos and websites and marketing campaigns. And people often ask me, Joey, what these things appear to have nothing to do with each other. What is the thread or is there a thread that connects them together? And I, I think the answer, uh, which was very evident with hindsight, but not at all evident as I was going through it, is that every job I've ever had, every position I've ever held, the way that you excelled at that position was by having a very clear understanding of the human condition. Why do people do the things they do? And what can we do to make them do the things we want them to do? So when I was a criminal defense lawyer, it was, you know, how can I help the jury to find that my client was not guilty? When I was doing business consulting, it was how can I help you sell more widgets next quarter? And so in each of these uh careers and positions, if you will, uh, that idea of being a student of human nature and of the human condition was really important. And so that's really the thread that's tied it all together. Fascinating. And I think that there's always a story that all of our backgrounds come together. I was just recently listening to the podcast on on how I built this on WeWork. And, and you know, the founder has this fascinating background, having grown up on a commune and being a design student and, and how that all all meshed together so that our stories come together eventually. I agree. I agree. So prior to writing this book, um, you really became known for your first 100 days program. And it was something actually recommended to our company by a coach and mutual friend, Cameron Harold, and that we put into place and have seen pretty amazing results. Can you talk about where that concept came from? Sure. You know, it's funny that we started our conversation with my eclectic career because the origin of the first 100 days program comes from two key experiences I had early, one in college and uh, the other one early in my career as a professional. So while I was in college, I studied government and international relations. And the area of focus, uh, my primary area of focus was the U.S. presidency. And as I'm sure many of your, at least your American listeners will know, you know, people like 
lots of times talk about the first 100 days of the presidency yeah. as being indicative and representative of what you can expect over the course of the remaining four years. And since FDR's time, there's been this discussion of, you know, well, how can we measure success in the first 100 days of the U.S. presidency? So I had that kind of experience and that background and that knowledge. Fast forward about oh, four or five years, and I was working for a company called the Corporate Executive Board doing Fortune 500 business consulting. And I was reading an article, uh, some primary research that we had created as an organization on banking and bank marketing and customer retention efforts. So really sexy stuff, riveting. You know, what are you reading on a Friday night? I'm reading that. And uh, long story short, I'm reading along in this study, and it says that 32% of newly acquired bank customers will leave before their one-year anniversary, and half of those customers will leave in the first 100 days. And I read that line, and I thought, I, I immediately rocketed back to my college days of the first 100 days of the presidency. And then I thought about that staggering statistic, 16% of new customers for a bank leaving in the first 100 days. And I thought, wow, bankers are notorious for paying attention to the bottom line. They're really good about tracking their numbers. Do they realize that they're hemorrhaging new customers? And the more I talked to people in banking, they didn't realize that. And I thought, well, if this is the case in banking, what's it like in other industries? And to be honest, Bob, that took me on a multi-year journey of researching what happens for onboarding efforts of new customers and how those are successful or not and how they impact customer retention. And what I found is that in all industries around the world, small, medium, and large companies, somewhere between 20 and 70% of your new customers will decide to stop doing business with you before reaching the 100-day anniversary. And this was staggering to me. Let me ask you a question there, because we talk a lot about how the employees that are dangerous are the ones that quit and stay and not quit and leave. So I'm assuming part of what you're saying is they may be contractually still obligated, but they made the decision that they're leaving. Correct. Correct. So in some industries, they actually have walked out. And this is uh, noticeably prevalent in the restaurant industry, right? Where, for example, and this is not me digging on them, but Chuck E. Cheese restaurant, for example, 46% of customers that go to a Chuck E. Cheese will not go again after their first visit. It's one and done. So almost half the people that they bring in the front door run out the back door never to come again. So in some businesses like that, it's an immediate exchange. In other businesses where there is a contract or a long-term engagement, they've decided mentally and emotionally not to do business with you when it comes time to renew. Plus, the even more devastating aspect is this is where the foundation gets laid for asking for referrals. Right. And if the foundation isn't properly established in the first 100 days, your ability to get a referral or to get increasing business out of this company, whether it's increased dollars or share of wallet in terms of all your services and offering, is devastated by the fact that the foundation hasn't been laid. Yeah, you know, Stephen Covey, I don't know if you've seen his work on sort of trust deficits or trust banks. And I have. Yeah. yeah and if you I assume this is if you start with a trust deficit and that's a long hole to climb out of. <laughs> It really is. It really is. And and the problem, I'll take it one step further, Bob, in the typical organization, what happens after a sale is made is the organization is celebrating. They're high-fiving. They're ringing bells. We landed a new customer. This is great. We're excited. And then that sales team is on to the next customer. 
and they hand off to an account representative who wasn't part of the sales at all, who's now responsible for retaining this membership and retaining this relationship. Counterbalance that against what's happening on the client's offices. Yes, they just signed the contract, but they're in a state of buyer's remorse. They're wondering if this is going to work out to be as good as the salesperson promised. And so the delta, the difference between the joy, euphoria, and excitement that is being felt on the company side, on the vendor side, oh, we signed a new client, we got a new customer, compared to the low, low emotional level, which is actually heavily laced with fear, doubt, and uncertainty on the new customer side, wondering if this is even going to work out, that difference if you don't bridge that difference very quickly, or to your point, as Cubby would say, you know, fill in that trust deficit, if you don't do that quickly, you'll never recover. Yeah. And, you know, Dan Pink's also really has dove into this recently and around, you know, how long a poor start lingers and that if you start work in a recession, you are typically making less money 10 years later. So it's all signs <laughs> point to the, the same answer here. Yeah. And and that's the thing that I love about the work is that the research holds strong across all industries in all environments. It applies to customers. It applies to employees. It applies to our life as employees, you know, or as workers, you know, and this, there's this phrase, right? That first impressions matter. Yeah. The problem is most people stop after the first impression, right? So they're like, oh, but we had a great kickoff meeting. Right. Well, yeah, awesome. So you got things off on, on the right foot. What are you doing to stack on top of that? What are you doing to continue to invest in making this relationship remarkable? We have an employee who I'll not name <laughs> that talks about a previous boss who the joke at their company was they sold the dream and the staff service the nightmare. So true. So true. And, you know, my time as a lawyer, this is uh, very accurate. You know, that's they used to refer to the summer associate program, right? When you were being courted to come work as a lawyer as the experience of heaven. And then, you know, when you actually signed on the deal and became a, an associate, you got to experience hell. So you know, it's, 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 it holds true in a lot of industries. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, and I don't think people realize, you know, how important and that we always say, so one of the things, we have a two-by-two matrix, a results and relationship matrix that we train people on. And we say, look, if you have the results and the relationship you're great. If you have no results and no relationship, you're probably fired. But if you had to choose between results and relationship, if you only had one, you're better off having that relationship and trust because results and things can vary and bad things can happen. At least you have the relationship to get you through that. If all you have is the results and that goes south, then you're probably in trouble. Part of this program is really setting that foundation because not everything will go well. Absolutely. There will be problems, and and I think you're spot on, Bob, and this is something that I, I wish every business and every employee on the planet would just embrace. You're going to make mistakes. Yeah. There are going to be times where it doesn't work out as planned, even with the best of intentions. You know, lots of times people look at things going wrong as, well, someone did something bad. Someone was derelict in their duty. Someone made an egregious mistake. Someone wasn't paying attention, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes we're, and we've all had this experience, I think, as both employees and those that are business owners, where you put in all of your effort and it still doesn't go right. To use a sports analogy, you leave everything on the field and you still lose the game. Like that happens. This is kind of the joy and the pain of being a human being, right? But I think the crazy thing is, even though we know that to be true, we have a tendency to forget that in business. And I totally agree with you on that matrix. Yeah, I will take the relationship over the results every day of the week and twice on the weekends, right? Because it's so much more valuable. And we've all had scenarios, I'm sure, where the results didn't go well, but because of the relationship, we doubled back down into the relationship. Eventually, the results came back. And we were all the better for it. But if you don't have the relationship, even if you're getting the results, there comes a point where you're like, you know what? It's just not worth it. Like, yeah, I'm getting great results, but this person's terrible to work with, or they're an obnoxious human being, or we have to jump through all these hurdles to get the results. It's just not worth the time and effort. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of establishing the relationships, you know, one of the things that we always tell people is just even starting a conversation with, hey, how was your weekend? oh, well, my father died this weekend, right? It, so that client call was not going to go well, right? That, <laughs> right. Knowing, right? Knowing that information, that person was probably frustrated and short with you and you're going to think, what did I do wrong? And just establishing some human connection there, it brings things to your attention that I think you really would have missed. I couldn't agree more. I think the if there was one takeaway for the podcast listener, it would be to remember that the customers you're interacting with have their own lives and their own stuff they're dealing with. And the more you can show up from a place of empathy and understanding and trying to figure out, well, where are they in their journey? What's going on in their personal life, et cetera, the better you'll be able to serve them. You know, lots of times when I speak to audiences, I'll have uh, in the Q&A period, someone will say, well, isn't it a little creepy and intrusive 
to try to find out what's going on in their personal life and ask them these type of questions. And I say, you know, it, it's all in how you ask it. But in an era where allegedly we are more connected than at any other time in human history, you know, you and I are not in the same room. We're a thousand plus miles away from each other recording a podcast. You know, we can jump from this to Facebook and communicate with someone literally on the other side of the planet in a matter of seconds. We have all this connection. And yet the psychologist and will tell you that we, there is more disconnection and a greater feeling of loneliness now than at any other time in human history. Right. And so I think the, the thing that's available to businesses is to make that connection because your customers are dying for a human interaction. They're dying for someone to actually ask them, how are you doing today? And be genuinely interested in the answer. Not asking because it's on a script, not saying how was your weekend because that's how we start every call, but genuinely asking because as a human being, I want to know what's going on in your life because the more I know what's going on in your life, the better I'll be able to connect with you and to serve you and give you what you need and to help you and to relate to you. Yeah, I mean, we always tell people we're we're at, not asking them to not be authentic, right? And if you right. if you don't if you don't feel comfortable around certain things. I mean, just open-ended questions. How are things going, right? How are you? Well, not so good. Here's why, right? I, I think people are, when you give them an open-ended question, they're more vulnerable and they're more transparent than you expect in responding on that. And you'd be very surprised how that simple question is answered a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other piece of this puzzle is uh, reciprocity is a powerful tool. And what I mean by that is if you want your customers to open up, you go first. Right. You tell them what's going on in your life. You tell them what you're interested in. You tell them what your hobbies are. Build rapport by leading from a place of example. And the human condition is such that if I tell you, Bob, oh, well, this weekend I, you know, had this really fun birthday party for my son and this is what we did and do to do, I've now given you half a dozen ways that you can create rapport and connection with me by talking about what you did this weekend. If you have kids, if you've been to a kid's party, you know, the, the more doors I, I leave for you to walk through the easier it is for you to feel comfortable about the conversation as well. Right. You know, one of the things you mentioned before, and thank you again for featuring uh, Acceleration Partners as your book in a case study. I mean, you have some great examples in the book of things that companies are tangibly doing in their 100-day programs. I was wondering if you could just share a few of your other favorites. Sure. Well, and in case there are folks listening who either uh, haven't had the chance to read the book or haven't had the joy of working with Acceleration Partners, you know, the, the story of yours that was so interesting to me and, you know, for by way briefly of a little bit of background, folks, um, when I was writing the book, I put a post on Facebook and I said, uh, let me know if you have dealt or done business with a company that has a great customer experience, especially in the first 100 days of the relationship. And our mutual friend Cameron Harold said, you need to talk to Bob. Now, the crazy thing is, Bob, you guys had been implementing the first 100 days strategy in your business, and you and I had never met. We had no idea. And I have to say, it was one of the connections and one of the recommendations that I was most excited about because I was like, okay, here's someone who has implemented what I teach, and I wasn't the person who taught them. 
So let's see what happens. And then we get on the phone and I hear about the great success you've had. And, you know, there's so many things that we could have talked about in terms of your case study in the book. But the one that we did talk about, uh, which is something that I've heard from a number of people since reading the book, have said to me, Joey, of all the case studies, this is the one that it would be easiest for us to do. And we see how it would have the biggest impact. And that is when somebody first starts a project with Acceleration Partners, they get a PDF that introduces them to the people on the team who they'll be working with. I think most of us that have done business with uh, another business have had the experience of, well, wait a second, who's working on this project? Who's on the team? And the fact that you send a PDF that includes the photo, it includes some information about the person professionally, it includes some information about the person personally, you know, with all due respect to what you've done, this is not a difficult task to do. It does require work and it does require thoughtfulness. But once you create it, sending that to new business partners, new clients is not a very difficult task. And yet the return on that investment of time is huge because now the employee knows exactly who they're supposed to deal with. The customer knows exactly who's going to be working on their project, what they're going to be doing. And they have a bit of insight into them, not only professionally, but personally. It's interesting. People ask all the time, you know, there are 46 case studies in the book and people (laughs) ask, they're asking who your favorite child is. You guessed it, brother. They asked who my favorite child is. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, so I'll, I'll rephrase it. Let me rephrase it a different way. All right. I think that was a good example of, of what are the things most important to do at the beginning and then more to do towards the hundred days. I'll use that. That's probably an example of right at the beginning. So what are some yes. examples? Give me some good highlights from beginning, middle, end. Sure. So I would say at the beginning, as we said, the main thing you want to do is make sure everybody's on the same page, not only about who they're going to be working with, but what the timeline and what the deliverables are. You know, I work with a company uh, called Policy Medical is a case study in the book that they do software implementation, which is a pretty complex process. Most of the time when we think of software implementations, if you've ever been involved in one, we're talking about Gantt charts and giant checklist, and it's not fun. So what we did is we created a puzzle. So they actually send a series of 20 puzzle pieces to the client along with you know, a frame and each of the puzzle pieces represents one of the steps in the software implementation process. So as those get completed, the point of contact at the client gets to put the puzzle together. And when it's all done, they have this picture that they've assembled based on the various steps of the software implementation being completed. So the the first thing is to kick things off well by making sure everybody who knows who all is involved in the project. The second thing I would recommend is make the process of onboarding, make the process of the implementation and starting to work together fun and create a visual connection to it. So it's very easy for the client to see where you are in the process and what's happening. Uh, You know, I refer to this, there are eight phases that I talk about in the book. This is the acclimate phase, right? Where you get the customer familiar with your way of doing business. As far as we get towards the 100-day timeline, and, you know, to be clear, 100 days is a good way to think about it. Some of the listeners are in businesses that it will take longer than 100 days to accomplish the goal that the customer had when they first decided to do business with you. In some businesses, the goal is accomplished very quickly. So, for example, if if I'm going to hire you to build an airport runway, that's going to be a multi-year contracting and development process. If I'm in line at the grocery store and I see some breath mints, 
and I'm like, wow, I could use one of these and I buy them and I pop one in my mouth, the time from purchase to achieving the result is a matter of seconds. And so I think it's one of those things where depending on your business, that timeline differs. But as you get later in the relationship, this is where you start to think about referrals. This is where you start to think about how do you help this customer to be an advocate of you and your business uh, and kind of become your sales team. And there's a company I profile in the book by the name of Four Canines, which sells dog seat covers online. So if you have a dog and you want to put it in your car, but you don't want the dog to tear up the upholstery or leave hair all over the back seat, you put a seat cover in. And they sell the premium seat cover that is the number one selling seat cover on Amazon, right? And they've built a multi-million dollar business on the side. It's a husband and wife team, Jim and uh, Maggie Umloff. And they've built this kind of on the side while they were working full-time jobs. The cool thing that they did, they do a number of things incredibly well in the first hundred days, but one of the things they're really good at is asking for reviews. And if you've ever shopped on Amazon, you know that reviews are the lifeblood of an Amazon listing. Um, Not only does it help on the back end with the algorithms and how Amazon decides to make your product show up in the search result, but a lot of people, when they're making a purchase decision, scroll right to the reviews and read what other peers have had to say about this product. And so they have a really unique way of asking for the review that doesn't feel overly indulgent, but where they tell their story and they say, look, we're a husband and wife team running a small business. We have three employees, including the two of us. We're trying our best to create great products for your dog that are environmentally friendly and good for your pet. And if you had the time to go write a review on Amazon, oh, it would mean the world to us. They have thousands and thousands of reviews because people feel compelled once the umlofts at Four Canines, once they've shared a little bit of their story, this comes back to that reciprocity issue. The customer now feels like, well, I gave them my money, but I can help grow their business and I like what they have. I should go write a review. That review is actually ends up being worth more than the profit margin on the product sold. Yeah. And just the act of a uh, executive reaching out and having that discussion I think is in a lot of companies, they would never even thought of that. I know someone years ago said you should pick up the phone and call one customer every week. Yeah, I I would say in most businesses, you know, it's great to set the goal of a minimum of once a week. The best companies I know, the leadership team is on the phone with a customer every day. Going back to the beginning of our conversation about what you learned in your past careers, I had the pleasure of working at the White House in the Office of Counsel to the President. Now, uh, this was back during the Clinton administration. And one of the things that my boss uh, required us to do, and I was a lawyer working for them, he required us to once a quarter spend the day on the phones. There's a phone number that you used to be able to dial into to kind of share your thoughts or your opinions with the president on any topic. And he required us to answer the phones one day out of the quarter. And the reason was, is he was like, guys, I want you to know who you're actually working for. You don't work for the president. You work for the people of the United States. Like This is a a role of service. This is what you need to do. And so we were, quote unquote, on the phone with customers regularly because we wanted to make sure that we didn't distance ourselves for why we got into this in the first place. No, it's really interesting. And let me ask you a question about economic cycles, because you've been doing this for a while. And, and, and actually, the 100-day program even first came up in those discussions with Cam around 
couple of years ago, sort of scenario planning and, hey, we kind of feel like the economy is getting tired and, you know, we had been headed in a session. He's like, look, if you think it's going to be a tough market, you want to make sure, take care of all your existing customers first and that you are you are as solid as them, with them as you can be. So have you seen this applied in cycles? Do people try to jump in and do it too late and they won't invest in the top and then only want to invest in the bottom? And I'm sure you would actually argue that they should do the exact opposite. Correct. No, you're, you're spot on, Bob. I would absolutely argue they do the opposite. See, we live in a world and in an era where most businesses find customer acquisition to be more important and more valuable than customer retention. But when you actually look at the numbers, the opposite is true. Uh, there are a number of reasons why acquisition gets all the attention. Uh, first of all, it's sexier, right? It's, it's more fun to chase than to catch. Adrenaline. And if you doubt this, yeah, adrenaline. If you doubt this, look at dating behavior of human beings, right? A lot more effort goes into dating than goes into sustaining a marriage, right? This, this is the basics of human behavior. Uh, you know, most leadership in organizations came up through the ranks of sales and marketing not through the ranks of account management. In the typical business, uh, all the incentives and the highest paid employees are the people who are in sales and marketing, not the people who are in customer account care. You know? And so there are all these structural things that combine with human nature to make it much more interesting and exciting to focus on acquisition instead of retention. But here's the staggering fact. In the typical business, what, so we did some research where we looked at all businesses around the world in all industries. And we said, how likely are you to close on a sales call with a client that you've never worked with before or a prospect you've never worked with before? How likely are you to convince them to become a customer and buy your product or service versus trying to get an existing customer to buy a new product or service? So in the first one, in dealing with prospects, across all industries, when you average it out, you know, salespeople will close somewhere between 5 and 20% of their sales calls, somewhere between 5 and 20% with a new prospect, a cold prospect, someone that they've never done business with before. When we look at selling to an existing customer, those conversion rates skyrocket to 60 to 70%. So not only is it better for your business to focus on your existing customers in terms of the dollars, but it is incredibly easier to sell to an existing customer? Not to mention one more statistic, if you can keep just 5% of your customers that would otherwise leave from leaving, it will increase your profits, not your revenues, your profits 25 to 100%. And don't take my word for that. That's research out of Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, and the international consultants Bain and Company. They've all done independent research and found that. And so to me, it's like all the numbers show this is where our focus should be. One of my favorite quotes, Joey, is from Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's number two. He says, show me the incentive and I'll tell you the behavior. From what you just said, I'm guessing that there's an incentive system problem with sales and that their look back period probably needs to change in order to have them really be concerned about retention and not saying my job's done. I, I, I sold it. You figure it out. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's two pieces of this puzzle. It's how do we incentivize sales and how do we incentivize the rest of the organization? So let's look at sales first. The typical salesperson is incentivized on new accounts 
converted, right? You get a new customer, you get an incentive. You get two, you get even more. You get three, you get four, you get five. At each level, you get paid more. So there is an incentive built in to get as many as you can as quickly as you can. It is the rare company that incentivizes for getting the right customer. And by the right customer, I define that as the customer who's going to stay around. So the best companies in the world, what they would need to do when it comes to sales incentives is let's say you're going to give your salesperson, a, I'm making this up to illustrate the point, a 5% commission on every new sale. If I were running that company, I would say, great, you get a 5% commission on the new sale. When they renew a year from now, you get a 6% commission. Yeah. When they renew the year after that, you get a 7% commission. And in eight, the commissions would grow instead of decline over time. What that would do is it would make the salesperson go find the long-term customer right. because they know it's going to be more valuable long-term. Now let's look at the incentives on the account management side. Usually account managers are incentivized around retention. However, the incentives they receive are a fraction of the incentives that salespeople receive. You never hear about the all expenses paid trip to Napa for you and your significant other <laughs> for keeping for the client. retaining the customer, right? That's, you know, there, in most businesses, there isn't a bell on the wall that gets rung and a big party thrown every time a customer renews. Those things are saved for the sales department. And so I think if we really want to change the behavior, we need to look at how are we incentivizing retention over acquisition. I, I think that may be one of the most important takeaways of the whole thing, because I think behaviors do follow incentives. And if you have an incentive-oriented culture and you don't change the incentives, it'll be very hard to get the behaviors to change. So for our last question, we always like to ask people to be a little reflective and I'll customize this for you in terms of what's the biggest 100-day mistake or failure that you learned the most from in your career? <laughs> this is a particularly timely question and one that I will be very honest about, okay? <laughs> so I'm the customer experience guy. I'm the first 100 days guy. I'm the guy who's supposed to create these remarkable experiences early in the relationship. Prior to launching my book, I had somewhere between four and six dozen clients. And I'll define a client as anybody who'd worked with me to come give a speech or a consulting engagement in the past year, as well as those, the ones I was currently working on. And then I launched a book and I got 10,000 customers in the first two weeks. That's how many people bought the book in the first two weeks of launch. And what I learned is that all the systems and processes that I had to handle relationships with four or five dozen customers break at the 10,000 mark. So what happened is I now have people emailing me and saying, oh, Joey, I read the book. Here's another question. Or, oh, Joey, I ordered the book and it never arrived, which was a little bit fascinating because I got those types of messages from people who had ordered from a third-party seller, yeah. right? They hadn't ordered the book from me personally. Uh, they had ordered from a company that- but they're buying you. They're, but they're buying me. And so the big takeaway for me was twofold. Number one, 
I needed to get even better systems and better processes. And so the book's been out when we're recording this, the book's been out for almost two months. We've been working overtime internally in my organization to do that. And I also learned something which ties back to a point we discussed earlier in the conversation. You're going to make mistakes, even with the best of intentions. There were things that happened that were so far out of my control, I can't even begin to tell you. And anyone looking at it objectively would say, Joey, that wasn't your fault. You know, if somebody goes online and they order a book from a bookstore and the bookstore never sends them the book, how could that possibly be Joey's fault? But the customer believed it was my fault. And that was okay when I came from a place of empathy and said, all right, what can I do to make your life better? And it was, all right, well, you never got it from them. Give me the information. I'll work to track it down with them. And in the interim, I'll send a copy from my personal stock overnight so you have it tomorrow. Now, that cost me some money, but my hope is that it made me some advocates. Absolutely. That's, that is a great and fitting story. So where can people learn more about you and your book? So the book is available at all bookstores. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, audible.com. There's an audio book. If you're a podcast listener, guess what, folks? I actually narrate the audio book. So if you enjoyed listening to my voice today, you can listen to me tell the 46 case study stories and more in the audio book. Um, so it's available anywhere that you might find a book or an audio book. As far as continuing the conversation, learning more, and getting some bonuses associated with the book, uh, listeners will want to go to joeycoleman.com. That's J-O-E-Y, Joey, like a five-year-old you know somewhere. Coleman, C-O O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation, joeycoleman.com. You'll find all kinds of videos, blog posts, bonus downloads, et cetera, uh, that will help you work to implement a first 100-day strategy in your business to hopefully create the kind of remarkable experiences that'll keep your customers coming back for more. All right, Joey, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your first 100-day methodology and your new book. I've had the honor of getting the, one of the early copies, and I think it's a worthwhile read for any company leader who really cares about their customers. And uh, we wish you a lot of continued success. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate you having me on the podcast today. All right. To our listeners, in the show notes for this episode, we'll include the links to Joey's website and everything he mentioned so you can learn more about him, uh, his coaching and speaking, and his new book, Never Lose a Customer Again. And until next time, keep outperforming. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. 
I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.